I don't know how I started in higher education, but I do know it was a learning curve, making U-turns, wrong turns, going around in circles and hitting stop signs until I started asking questions, asking faculty, scholars, even myself looking for answers. So now they call me the... The Navigationalist. All right, thank you. Thank you so much. All right, let's go. Welcome to The Navigationalist, where we will have crucial conversations about navigational strategies. Thank you for joining us. We have a lot to talk about today, and I have a few questions for our navigational guests. The first one is, are you a member of the faculty union, and why is that important? Or did you know you can experience racial battle fatigue at a predominantly white institution and a historically black college? And I will continue to urge you all to participate in shared governance. Why? Because that's where the magic happens. And believe me, you can make a difference. Today, I have two scholars. We have Nicholas Hartlip and Daisy Ball, editors of the book, Racial Battle Fatigue and Faculty. This is going to be awesome. Perfect. And let me remind our podcast audience, if you have a question for our navigational guests, please visit our website at greenbookforhighered.com. All right, let's go. And we have Dr. Bailey at the cafe. Hello, may I be anonymous, please? I work at a historical white college in a rural area. Let me first say I am tired. The first thing I did when I was hired was join the faculty union. They have great parties, but when I make complaints about bullying in my department, they do nothing. People not in the union are bullied. On top of that, they say things with some racial tones and nobody calls them off. What are my next steps? For one, when we select this question, it wasn't to say that the unions do not help underrepresented faculty. We understand that with the help of the unions, they have bolstered opportunities, protection, encouraged political participation, and offer access to many communities, Native Americans, African Americans, Latinos, Asians, faculty with disabilities, female faculty, but underrepresented faculty have questions. So, uh, Dr. Daisy Ball. I guess, I, you know, my first question is, uh, has this, when this, when this person has complained, um, have they, uh, I'm sure they've thought about filing a formal complaint, but they've probably also thought about what repercussions might uh, accompany that. Um, so if if they have a, a trusting and positive relationship with their chair, it's not clear that they do if they're concerned about things going on in their department. But if they do, before filing a, a complaint, possibly speaking to the chair about you know what they might face uh, in taking those steps. If the chair is not a trusted individual, is there somebody in leadership within the union who they do trust? who they possibly could uh, speak to about that process. And I mean, unions are, um, you know, there are various power structures therein built in so that if the answers aren't met at one step, presumably you can move up um, that, that ladder. I've heard many stories as I talk to faculty members from the West to the South, to the East and to the North. And sometimes uh, faculty unions are, not on your side. I've heard stories when faculty of color are hired and they feel and they receive a backlash from the um, counterparts, including the unions. Have you heard these stories? In, in the book, Daisy and I talk about 
in the beginning, in the introduction, we talk about um, why do a book and we share our personal stories. And so it's a, <clears throat> quite ironic. I start my introduction to racial battle fatigue precisely to your point, um, racism I've experienced in a predominantly white um, union. And so <clears throat> I am pro-union to your point. I think um, it's undeniable we need unions and they play an integral role, especially for faculty. But when I was experiencing these, this micro, these microaggressions and I would say macroaggressions in, within the union, it made me turn to the literature and I discovered that there's been quite a lot of work um, done on unions and the experiences of minority and minoritized faculty. Um, and it's, there are very racially hostile um, entities or organizations or what, whatever you want to classify them as. Um, and that becomes problematic. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that Books like Daisy and Mine are important because of what Zora Neale Hurston said. If you're silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. So faculty in unions, this this particular quote, um, vignette that you just read for for the um, listeners of your podcast. Um, it's If you're listening to this podcast and you're experiencing racism within a union, you need to speak out and um, speak out bravely. Thank you for that, Nick. I, and I want to reiterate to our podcast audience, it's important for you to, to speak out. But don't get me wrong, I do hear success stories. Dr. Ball, please. So I, also, I would add, I mean, I've experienced a union in higher ed in Massachusetts, and it was really strong, and, and it protected its members, and it did the right thing. But I'm concerned, especially based on Nicholas's experience, that oftentimes a uh, union just seems uh, functions as a cloak of security when, in fact, there's there's no true security there, or, in fact, it can disenfranchise its members rather than support them. So, I was talking to a, a colleague of mine the other day about racial battle fatigue, and he told me that faculty of color experience racial battle fatigue at a predominantly white institution and a HBCU. It blew my mind. That's part of the book, a, a unique feature of our book um, that Daisy and I, we looked at stories across different institutional types, something that really hasn't been done in the literature. So you can experience racial battle fatigue, certainly in primarily white, historically white institutions, but you can also experience them then at an HBCU or a anapesi. So minority serving institutions are not, um, you know, different in that sense. So when we think about the experiences um, that faculty of color, women faculty, Native American um, faculty experience in, in higher ed, um, there are some, there's some common threads um, that they're experiencing um, and, and they're not good experiences. So feeling marginalized, invisible, um, um, you know, sexually harassed. So uh, I think it's very important um, books like ours to share that, um, you know, it's not just um, black and brown indigenous people um, railing against primarily white institutions. It can happen at community colleges. It can happen at liberal arts colleges and research intensive colleges. Uh, and it really needs to stop because leadership 
hiring um, personnel, they need to um, do a, a better job in terms of uh, minimizing these experiences for, for the employees. Yeah, Nick, you know, it, it happens everywhere. And, you know, uh, in many conversations, we talk about bringing our true self to the campus, to the college, to your workplace, placing your positionality up front. So what can colleges and universities do so we feel safe doing that sort of thing? Yeah, a central theme that runs throughout many of the uh, chapter authors' points when they're, when they're discussing, okay, what can institutional leaders do? One point that I liked that many of them made is that when you, when you invite a diverse faculty member to join your community, you're inviting the whole person, not just the aspect of them that you want to harness for diversity-related quota. Um, and so we have one section in our book that looks at indigenous faculty, and uh, one of the authors discusses how his program of research, his style of research, his style of teaching is very, very different and much more inclusive with his community, and that wasn't always something that was welcomed in, in various institutional settings. So I really like that piece of you're, you're inviting the entire person, everything that they bring with them in all aspects of their diversity. So the concept of John Henryism always strikes a nerve with me overachievement for perfectionism, uh, working twice as hard to prove one's worth, grit some people call it, tough skin. Why do we think like that? I mean, workaholic as a badge of honor. How do we cope with this? How should, what could colleges do to help us cope with this? You're right. I, I, I see a lot of times people internalizing this um, and graduate school does that very nicely to us, to think that you have to work at a research one institution, and if you don't, you're not intellectually um, at the level of others. And then, so it's so much social comparison within the academy. Are you publishing in the right journals? Um, and that was not, that, that system is not, um, really for folks of color and, and indigenous communities because that's not how community works in those spaces. It's one of, of, of solidarity and giving and, and sharing. And so it's, in my estimation, um, a lot of the times satisfaction comes from feelings of belonging. So never, never once in my career have I felt more sense of belonging than at Berea College, which is a, a liberal arts college. And the, the history of Berea College is pretty radical of being the first co-educational interracial college of the South. And if you look at their, their um, website, you can kind of see some of the, the things that they've done and continue to do as a work college. Um, that's a long way to say that um, it's, it's not surprising that racial battle fatigue um, is so prevalent in all a lot of colleges across the country and universities. And you should love your college. And let me say all colleges are different. You need to find the one that fits you. Is it rural, urban, suburban, four-year college, community college? Is it this state, east, south, north? Figure out which college you want to belong to. Assess your goals. So, if you haven't checked out a union, please check them out. Review them. Tell me what you think. Is racial or gender justice equity a priority? Check. Do they have an effective grievance process? Check. Do our interests converge in some way? Check. Make sure your interests are in line. And lastly, 
do they listen? Check. Wow. Awesome conversation. Now we're off to our second question with Dr. Bailey at the cafe. I have thick skin, I tell myself. When a microaggression occurs, I brush it off. But lately, I've been so tired. The last straw when no one checked on me during this COVID-19. I've been calling in sick to work more than often. Nobody checked on me about how I was emotionally doing due to our racial charge events. My mentor mentioned racial battle fatigue, and I said I had symptoms. Is this a public health and mental health illness? Is it really affecting me? I've been there. I can so much identify with this faculty member here. He, she, or they are tired. I remember when COVID-19 hit and I began asking the administrators if they were checking on their faculty of color. Many administrators did not even know faculty of color felt a type of way until they had a forum, which was too late, because then they described explosive experiences of emotional, physical, spiritual. So, yes, it affects us. But how? Dr. Daisy Ball, please. So, I'll share uh, the definition of racial battle fatigue from Smith et al. from uh, 2007. They write, social psychological responses, including frustration, anger, exhaustion, withdrawal, etc., associated with being a person of color and the repeated target of racism. And so the idea here is that it's an accumulation of these experiences, which absolutely does pose both a public health risk and a mental health uh, risk or illness. And so I think we tend to think about things from the individual perspective, oh, this is just me who's experiencing this, or um, oh, I'm just, yeah, somehow I've um, brought myself into having these experiences when in fact it's a, a community-wide experience but our institutions are structured so that um, if we have a diversity fellow or um, you know what have you a diversity hire um, voices aren't communicating and aren't heard um, and and I'm particularly concerned about racial battle fatigue in the era of COVID-19 right so we have an already vulnerable group of people who's who's physical well-being is made even that much more vulnerable um, because of the pandemic. One thing about your book, I just stuck out with the narratives, how you challenge the master narrative. As a writer, I believe in the power of stories. And as a person of color, I believe in the power of narratives and how it empowers us all to dismantle this master narrative, right? Um, when you, when the dominant, you know, common sense, air quote, um, is used to explain away how one person experiences, you know, a department or a college or a faculty orientation. <clears throat> and I was thinking of uh, Paulo Freire in the Pedagogy of the Press, where he says, it's not our role to speak to the people about our own view of the world, nor to attempt to impose that view on them, but rather to dialogue with the people about their views and ours we could say views or experiences. And so um, sometimes when folks of color, indigenous folks, women share their stories, um, they're not really listened to, they're dismissed and they're not taken as credible. And so thinking about people listening to your podcast, hopefully some are, are leaders at colleges and universities, ideally they would cultivate a culture that would listen and not take it personal, not be so, okay, immediately dismiss it and start 
reflecting on, oh, is it possible? Is it possible that others experience the world differently than I do? Uh, and then move move it forward. Um, and, you know, I had a, a, a colleague of mine um, who recently was talking to me about his experience um, during the hiring process during this COVID pandemic, right? And the interviewing process. Uh, and he asked me some questions. He's like, what do you think happened? And I told him um, right away. And he said, you're absolutely right. And I said, of course I'm right. Because we, this is a common experience we have. This is, this is how you have a hiring experience as a, a scholar of color. And um, so we, we almost chuckled because he asked the question. I knew immediately what happened. And so until that predictability goes away, um, I, I think we, we still remain in this time of we do need to continue to share these counter stories. And um, because otherwise the master narrative will continue to say, no, it's this, it's this, it's this. Um, so. And I think it is interesting uh how counter narrative meets master narratives. Untold stories are told and unknown people are described. I mean, unknown rules are revealed, right? And I believe this is where navigational tools are revealed, right? Well, well, navigational capital is something that folks of community have been been locked out of. So that's one thing. If if you have listeners who are to your point navigating higher education um, to get mentors, fem, femters, as well as um, sponsors, because higher education is not meritocratic at all. Um, you need folks who uh, are higher than you and have more capital that can, can put in a word for you. Um, and that's unfortunately how it works. Um, if you don't have the pedigree, uh, in terms of where you got your degree, if you don't have the prestige titles and, and that's so foreign to many communities. I've never, I've never quite understood how higher education, we have to fight like hell to keep our job, right? Because you got to each year tell them what you're, you're doing annually. But I've never been in a space where it's so insecure and, and competitive. You know, because if, if, if everyone's special, then no one's special. So this exclusivity, the Eurocentric um, nature of it, um, that's one thing that folks need to understand. And, and that's the, the key to navigating higher Yeah, ed. and this idea of the currency of academia, right? And so um, this and several of our chapter authors talk about this. That, you know, you say, well, what do I do if I'm experiencing discrimination? Well, you should speak up about it. But I don't, I can't risk that because I'm not tenured yet, right? And the process is so long. And then I'm looking at promotion. Well, I might not get that promotion. Well, let's see my, let's say that my course evaluations are perceived as poor because I have an accent or what have you. Um, so I'm always at risk. And so that silences me. And so it, that's not a coincidence, certainly, because it keeps the, the people who structured the system from the get-go, the, the majority group members, in power, right? So what can colleges and universities do? I think one thing institutions can do is reevaluate their tenure and promotion standards uh, and step out of the white racial frame, right, and in, in, into doing. And... Um, 
consider how could they more how could they broaden or be more flexible in terms of what counts in terms of scholarship production presentation etc i know that younger scholars tend to maybe publish in open access or in online forums or do podcasts or what have you count and uh, in the old school way of what counts in terms of academia and publishing and publications. So rethinking that. And I know some colleges that have done that really well and others that are still looking at using the standards that were created, you know, a hundred years ago. So well well navigational capital <clears throat> is something that folks of community have been been locked out of. So that's one thing if if you have listeners who are to your point navigating higher education. Um, to get mentors, fem femters, as well as um, sponsors, because higher education is not meritocratic at all. Um, you need folks who uh, are higher than you and have more capital that can can put in a word for you, um, and that's unfortunately how it works. Um, if you don't have the pedigree. Uh, in terms of where you got your degree, if you don't have the prestige titles, and and that's so foreign to many communities, I've never I've never quite understood how higher education we have to fight like hell to keep our job, right? Because you gotta each year tell them what you're you're doing annually. But I've never been in a space where it's so insecure and and competitive. You know, because if, if, if everyone's special, then no one's special. So this exclusivity, the Eurocentric um, nature of it, um, that's one thing that folks need to understand. And, and that's the, the key to navigating higher ed. So um, dismantling the master narrative, what does that mean? It means dismantling power structures. And one way to do that is by sharing experiences and believing in those experiences and creating policies to support those experiences, listening to others' perspective outside this dominant frame, right? We'll talk about that more later. Excellent. So now we're off to our third question. So I or this diversity fellowship program, which is cool, but when I voice my opinion, no one listens to me. They said they needed my Latino expertise. What? I am the only person of color on a committee because every person of color are tired of being ignored. What can I do? So I love these questions. And I think we need more fellowship programs. And I understand they come in different versions. But in them, there are opportunities. So this faculty member is asking about tackling tokenism, being heard. How can you be invisible and visible at the same time? How to maintain when you feel the pressure of being the only one? Dr. Ball, please. So one of the things we talk about in our book, um, the, the, the final section is devoted to diversity-related fellowships, uh, divert kind of um, positions whereby institutions recognize their need to diversify and thus they create they're going to hire one faculty member who meets their diversity standards, however they've defined that, um, and then their job is done, and they can point to this, right, uh, to this hire. Um, and it's very problematic. I, I would say that for your listeners who are potentially 
uh, thinking about applying for a diversity fellowship or have been asked to apply for one at their current institution or they're maybe finishing their PhD and on the job market looking at, at, at positions such as this, you want to be very careful about these positions. Um, what, we've, what we saw in, in the research we did for the book is that these positions actually slow down, even though they purport to move diversity faculty members uh, forward, they actually inhibit them in many ways. They often come with much higher uh, service loads alongside traditional teaching loads. So you're the diverse hire, thus you're expected to mentor the sociology club, hold, uh, you know, host a number of events on campus, um, help out at festivals or what have you. Um, you're also expected to teach a 4-4 load. And what about that publication? The big kicker with these, um, many of these positions, and they're not all the same, so I'm not speaking, you know, across the board. Um, but the big kicker is that most of them aren't on your track. So they're like a three gig, year gig, and uh, you've spent your life slaving away uh, on service, and then suddenly you have very few publications compared to maybe your other peers who have landed other sorts of positions. Um, and so my concern is that they allow universities to look good, um, essentially, while at the, at the same time exploiting people um, because of their diversity. You know, we, we need those programs, right? But even in those programs that we created for underrepresented faculty, underrepresented faculty are leaving higher ed. So it makes me think, are people actually thoroughly thinking about them in its creation? Absolutely. So <clears throat> thinking about, and that's a counter, that's a counter narrative, right? Because we're not saying let's, let's abolish those programs. We're, we're just saying the outcomes are not as they alleged. And uh, that's not treasonous as a person of color to say, look, those programs are great, but what's the outcome of that said program? <clears throat> um, Daisy and I have done other research and looked at fellowship programs by premier institution, uh, premier organizations. Um, we've we've seen a homophilous type of relationship where certain um, certain candidates are more likely to um, become fellows. Um, when it's alleged that those fellowship programs were to um, create interdisciplinary research. Exactly. So what should we, uh, underrepresented faculty, uh, do to um, apply pressure to this? So we need to hold people accountable. And that's one thing um, that I think moving forward, we always have to have data so we can monitor discrepancies and disparities. And then we need to respond to those disparities with policies and actions and behaviors that would hopefully um, ameliorate those disparities. Um, and also, it's not necessarily skin folk and aren't kin folk. So it's not necessarily what wrapper you have and the labels we're putting on. I think that uh, a commitment to equity, inclusion, diversity, um, there are white people that do that very well. And there are black people, Hispanic, Latinx, you, you fill in the blank. But um, it's important to um, understand you can't rage with the machine and say you're raging against it. That's just impossible. And so you're either with the status quo or you're fighting the status quo. And right now, I would say the status quo is um, pretty intract, uh, you know, uh, embedded. Uh, so whatever policies um, for faculty hiring you know, we, we, it's very simple, but even exit interviews, when faculty of color leave and they're not retained, why did you leave? Um, 
at what point did you feel um, not part of the community? When did you depersonalize, right? Because depersonalization is a psychological response. That's to keep your mental health. Um, and it's not just for primarily white institutions. So those are things that I think that the HR department and they, they know those are just good best practices. But how often are those then those data shared with, you know, the president, provost, deans, chairs when they're doing another uh, hire? One thing I want to add to like our conversation about like if if you're one of few African-American faculty members at a college, you're often pointed to by other faculty uh, to the African-American students. So that should be your mentor. That should be your point person. Um, and I, having spoken with colleagues who have experienced this, um, that's a heavy burden to suddenly be there, that person, that point of reference for these students. And oftentimes these communities form around this one individual. And uh, even though they're being bullied by their colleagues, they're being exploited in various ways, they don't want to let the students down and they recognize it's not the students' fault. And so I think they actually stay in these harmful positions, toxic positions, much longer than possibly they should have simply because they've got this, this uh, student expectation on them. And, um, and you know, I, I remember one trying to leave, an one colleague of mine trying to leave an institution, but feeling as though essentially he was, um, he was completely letting down his, his small group of children and it was very, very harmful for him. And I think he still has tremendous guilt from it and for it, even though he shouldn't, uh, you know, he shouldn't necessarily have ever had to that, so. And one thing for sure, when we have these programs, um, we develop um, our underrepresented leaders, our mm -hmm. leaders of color, our female leaders. Um, are they stepping up to the plate? Patterns that I see are um, ascendancy. So when you go higher, there's typically fewer. So again, if you move from an associate to full or to an endowed or to a provost, there's less. So the pyramid gets sharper as you climb also it's compensation so I'm talking about issues of compensation and with that um oftentimes the reward to ascend is not calling out the institution or others so in a very crude fashion that statement about well-behaved minorities there's truth in that in that you can't really ruffle feathers when you're climbing um, so a president, I mean, not always, it's not always the case. So the, the truth telling, you know, the truth hurts. And I do, I, I've seen faculty of color do problematic things <laughs> in terms of how they communicate and vote and behave and talk. And, and I, and I really think that they've internalized something or other. They're, they're just, they, they view things differently than I do, but... Wow, the impact of being the only one, the impact of tokenism. And this only applies more work stress and psychological symptoms on underrepresented faculty. So we, uh, we all must disrupt this. Tokenism begins with the hierarchy of races, ethnicities, female faculty, people with disabilities, and so forth. It's a system of oppression. So there's definitely a difference between choosing to talk than someone reducing you to your very assistant to one part of me. So let's disrupt it. Make a genuine effort to socialize with people different than yourselves and understand them and let them understand you. 
If they ask you to participate, share your knowledge about the institutions, your access, your power, your concerns. Make sure they understand. Right? All right, now we're at the end of our podcast, and this has been fun. Great. So do you have any advice for our podcast audience? I read a, an interesting um, post recently that talked about when colleges closed suddenly in, in spring, it talked about how to be a bad online instructor. And people argued that students didn't sign up for this and faculty didn't sign up for this. And so assuming that all of our students are coming to this platform equally is a, is a poorly calculated assumption. And so one thing I've had to try to do as a faculty member is to say, it's okay if you're not doing everything you possibly could be doing, but just do, uh, be kind to yourself and be kind to your students. And I think my dean gave me that piece of advice. And I really, I thought of that repeatedly when I felt guilt for not synchronous class meetings. Well, my students were all across the country and abroad suddenly. And so how could I require that of them? Many of them had siblings who, uh, three, four kids fighting over a computer. And so wasn't going to work for me to, you know, mimic the classroom experience perfectly. And in fact, it wasn't fair to them. My advice would be, uh, because depending on where that new hire, so my my um, wisdom to share would be uh, for someone who is just hired, you're going into your first faculty position, would be um, be very cautious about everyone because um people, you might read people incorrectly. So the, the very people that you think are allies for you as a scholar of color, as a uh, woman scholar, indigenous scholar, um, give it time. And the cherry on the top is because of COVID. So for instance, you might actually be in the office much less. And this these, I'll call them characters, but these people, um, they might be different than they are in a virtual setting than if they were when we hopefully get a, a vaccination for this and we're back in person. So be very cautious about your relationships. Certainly get to know everyone, but be very cautious of, of people because you don't know who who is out to get you. It sounds horrible that I say that, but there, there will be people who don't want to see you successful. Um, I heard there's a, a phrase for that, schadenfreude, people that get pleasure from your misery. So there are some people in higher ed, it's, it's sad to say, that have PhDs that want to see you fail. Well, and and or they ex have a, a expectation for what you as the diverse faculty hire or whatever will be. And if you don't meet those expectations or you, you act or, or are very different from those, um, but still a high quality scholar, faculty member, um, that will often cause them to turn against you. And I will also add to what Nicholas said, people are paying attention and they're watching. One of the chapter authors talked about when, uh, when he did vocalize his frustrations at departmental politics, suddenly the chair and the dean were dropping in during his office hours just to check to make sure he was actually holding them and uh, critiquing how far, how, how wide open his door was or, or how narrowly open it was. And so uh, that wasn't happening for any of the white faculty members of the college. Thank you so much for joining us, you two. You two are wonderful. Thank you so much. This is Navigational Report 98797. Thank you all for sending these questions. I hope we help you and all who listen. And notice that we have similar experiences. Many of us have received a flyer or an invitation about a faculty union. And if you haven't checked one out, see what they're talking about. 
but be prepared to present your positionality over and over and over and over again. In the past, this past year, 2020, was a tough year for racial battle fatigue and exhaustion. So recognize that and deal with it. It is very, very real. You are not John Henry and we don't want you to be John Henry. On campus, in your affinity group, in friendly circles, share your stories and be surprisingly surprised that we are going through the same thing. And if you are a diversity hire, congratulations. But remember, the spotlight was on you at the beginning when you were hired, and it will continue when you step foot on campus. So remember, you don't have to be super diversity, but be upfront with your team. Tell them your concerns. They know studies. We have studies and research telling people about this. And as you ascend to great heights and busting glass windows, receiving promotions after promotions, remember, pause, remember, there is still work to be done. We need your help. Well, this is awesome. Well, I am Jimmy Chapman, host of The Navigationist. See you on our next episode on The Navigationist.